Chapter Eleven of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Evans. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Chapter Eleven. Inheritance of Acquired Characters. Lamarck's Laws Buffon, Erasmus Darwin, and Lamarck, as we saw in the first chapter, all developed evolutionary theories which had one thing in common, the inheritance by offspring of the modifications impressed upon the parent during its lifetime. Buffon believed that these modifications were the result of the direct action of environmental influences, Erasmus Darwin, that they sprang from within, through the reaction of the organism to outside conditions, applying his theory to both animals and plants. While Lamarck compromised, setting forth the view of Erasmus Darwin as applied to animals, and the Buffonian factor with reference to plants. Lamarck's theory of evolution is best stated in an English rendition of his own words, by Osborne, 1905, quote, First law. Life by its internal forces tends continually to increase the volume of every body that possesses it, as well as to increase the size of all the parts of the body up to a limit which it brings about. Second law. The production of a new organ or part results from a new need or want which continues to be felt, and from the new movement which this need initiates and causes to continue." Unquote. This is the psychical factor in his theory, which Cope later has termed archresthetism. Resuming quotation, quote, Third law. The development of organs and their force or power of action are always in direct relation to the employment of these organs. At another point he expands this into two sub-laws. Again, quote, In every animal which has not passed the term of its development, the more frequent and sustained employment of each organ strengthens little by little this organ, develops it, increases it in size, and gives it a power proportioned to the length of its employment, whereas the constant lack of use of the same organ insensibly weakens it, deteriorates it progressively diminishes its powers, and ends by causing it to disappear." Unquote. This is now known as the law of use and disuse, or kinetogenesis. Quote again, the fourth law. All that has been acquired or altered in the organization of individuals during their life is preserved by generation and transmitted to new individuals which proceed from those which have undergone these changes. Unquote. This law is now known as the inheritance of acquired characters, or better, to revive Lamarck's original idea expressed in the word, changements. We should call it the theory of inheritance of acquired changes or variations. These laws are thus summarized by Lamarck in his Philosophique Zoologique. Quote, but great changes in environment bring about changes in the habits of animals. Changes in their wants necessarily bring about parallel changes in their habits. 
if new wants become constant or very lasting they form new habits the new habits involve the use of new parts or a different use of old parts which results finally in the production of new organs and the modification of old ones circumstances influence the forms of animals but i must not be taken too literally for environment can affect no direct changes whatever upon the organization of animals neo-lamarckian school lamarck's second and third laws especially have a great deal of truth in them but the crucial point in their acceptance as evolutionary factors is the truth or falsity of his last premise and herein lies the apparent impediment to the acceptance of his teaching for the whole fabric of his theory depends upon it and as we have seen the weismann law of heredity seems to controvert it beyond question nevertheless there has sprung up in recent years a group of writers who are in a measure the followers of lamarck and to whom the name neo-lamarckian as opposed to the neo-darwinian school that is followers of charles darwin championed by weismann has been given among the adherents to the former may be found many pathologists that is students of morbid anatomy whose researches show the wonderful plasticity of the individual body and the paleontologists who see continually before them evidences of adaptation which seem to imply the action of mechanical forces that is kinetogenesis in their production but not all pathologists or paleontologists believe in the inheritance of acquired characters among the better known followers of this school may be mentioned herbert spencer the german savants eimer and haeckel the botanist nagelee the american paleontologist cope hyatt and dahl the zoologist packard and the student of recent vertebrates godov many of whom however did their work before weismann's objection was published what the effect of the latter upon their beliefs would have been one cannot say but it would doubtless have been weighed very heavily by most of them weismann's theory of heredity admitted the possibility of inheritance of acquired characters among the protozoa the lower metazoa and lower plants but not among the higher plants and animals as auburn in eighteen ninety one says however it is difficult to see why so valuable an asset as the ability to inherit such characteristics and thus to profit by the failures and successes of past generations should ever have been lost through natural selection weismann later admitted and the view has wide acceptance that the germ plasm might become modified to a limited extent by certain environmental conditions but that such modifications led to general and unpredictable changes in future generations which might be entirely different from those somatic changes in the parents which were directly produced by such environment this is by conklin acquired characters acquired characters are of such interest that it is well to enumerate the various sorts in some detail in the flounders and soles that is heterosatnata the body is greatly compressed from side to side and the form both swims and lies flat on the bottom with one side invariably uppermost with some species it is the right with others the left 
the uppermost side is usually colored protectively to harmonize with the sandy bottom on which the animal lies while the other side is generally white due to the absence of pigment but the most peculiar feature is that both of the eyes lie on the pigmented side due to a twisting of the cranium and a modification of certain of its bones when the young flounder is hatched it is translucent and symmetrical swimming vertically in the water with an eye on either side of the head like any other fish later it begins to rest on the bottom with its ventral edge then it leans to one side and as its position gradually becomes horizontal the eye on the lower side migrates around to the other carrying with it certain of the bones there is also a gradual assumption of color on the upper surface as the habit of lying on one side is acquired placing the creature in an aquarium lighted from below causes the development of the pigment on the lower side as well as the upper showing a light stimulus to be necessary while holding the young animal permanently in the upright position retards indefinitely the movement of the eye with the ultimate limit that death soon intervenes cunningham among others has claimed quote, that the twisting of the head in the flounder is due to the inheritance of an acquired character a flat fish without air bladder resting on the sea bottom naturally falls on one side the eye thrust into the sand is naturally twisted around to the upper side and this tendency begun in very young individuals becomes hereditary while the lack of pigment on the underside is also transmitted by inheritance but it is just as easy to claim that the first trait of adaptation is due to natural selection and that the whiteness of the blind side is ontogenetic due to the absence of light in the growth of the individual in any case no specific theory of the origin of the twist of the flounder's head can be regarded as proved unquote. from jordan and kellogg on the other hand cunningham put the very young fish while still bilaterally symmetrical in which stage the pigment is equally developed on both sides of the body into aquaria lighted from below he found that when the young fish begins to undergo its metamorphosis the pigment gradually disappears on one side as it would have done under normal conditions that is when they are lighted from above if however the fish are kept for a short time longer lighted from below the pigment begins to come back again Quote, the first fact says cunningham proves that the disappearance of the pigment cells from the lower side in the metamorphosis is a hereditary character and not a change produced in each individual by the withdrawal of the lower side from the action of the light on the other hand the experiments show that the absence of pigment cells from the lower side throughout life is due to the fact that light does not act upon that side for when it is allowed to act pigment cells appear it seems to me that the only reasonable conclusion from these facts is that the disappearance of the pigment cells was originally due to the absence of light and that the change has now become hereditary the pigment cells produced by the action of light on the lower side are in all respects similar to those normally on the upper side of the fish if the disappearance of the pigment cells was due entirely to the variation of the germplasm no external influences could cause them to reappear and if there were no hereditary tendency 
the coloration of the lower side of the flatfish would be rapid and complete. Unquote. This from Kellogg. Restriction of food. Food supply profoundly affects the ultimate growth of an animal. A number of houseflies of the same species will be seen to differ materially in size around a certain average. This does not mean that the smaller ones are younger than the larger, for an adult insect, when once it has attained the power of flight, has ceased to grow. What it does mean is that the small fly, unless it belonged to a different variety, was unable to secure sufficient food during its period of larval life, resulting in a permanent dwarfing of the individual. Nothing is recorded, however, of any permanent effect of such dwarfing upon the race while silkworms if meagerly fed for one generation fail to attain the full optimum of size as adults for three generations even though the larvae are amply fed with the succeeding generations however the moths become larger and soon attain their normal size permanent dwarfing is known to occur as in the case of the dogs owned by the indians around the hudson bay trading post which have been in their possession about thirty years, and are now much smaller than better-fed dogs belonging to the same original stock, but owned by the white men of the posts. Other instances of permanent dwarfing are seen in the Shetland ponies, of which the average height is about ten hands, though many do not exceed nine hands. Whence the ancestral stock of these ponies reached the Shetlands is unknown some writers suggesting a Scandinavian, others a Scottish origin, but some of them are cart-horse-like in build, others more slender and Arab-like. Whatever their origin, they are unquestionably derived from a much larger stock, and the diminution of size is apparently a direct response to circumscribed surroundings together with hard conditions and meager fare. In the islands of Malta and Cyprus have been found dwarf races of elephants, the adult individuals ranging in height from three to seven feet, relics of the old armies of migration when these Mediterranean islands were part of a broad highway of communication between Africa and Europe. And here again the same causes which have dwarfed the Shetland ponies seem to have had influence, for the small size and innumerable variations of these elephants are ascribed to the struggle for existence that such a reduced and unfavorable feeding ground would entail. These dwarf elephants are now entirely extinct, but seem to have been of the same stock as the African elephants of today, which in the fullness of their growth possess a stature second to no living terrestrial form. The effect of these restrictions of food is in the nature of transmission of the maternal condition rather than true heredity, and doubtless for many generations the dwarfing was simply the result of ontogenetic repetition and meant nothing more. Ultimately, however, the repeated starving seems to have made itself felt in heredity, with the result of a permanently dwarfed race. Mutilations have been one of the principal lines of research of those who would prove the inheritance or non-inheritance of acquired characters. Even when practiced for many generations, or even for thousands of years, for instance circumcision in man, these apparently fail to influence the unmutilated progeny in the slightest degree. 
Weismann, for instance, experimented on white mice, producing no fewer than 901 young from five successive generations of artificially mutilated parents, and yet there was not a single example of a rudimentary tail or any other abnormality in this organ. Hence we may safely say that variations due to mutilation and to disease are apparently not inherited. Otherwise, in all probability, none of us would exist without some trace of hereditary crippling. Of the effect of climate, on the other hand, we are not so sure. For while again many of the observed changes which an animal undergoes as a result of the influence of cold or heat or humidity or dryness may be of an ontogenetic nature, nevertheless, some remarkable experiments upon toads and salamanders tend to prove certain of them otherwise. Camerar's Experiments A Viennese experimentalist, Camerar, exposed larvae of the toad Alates to abnormal physical conditions such as darkness and cold and perfectly still water, and thus managed to prolong the larval condition even to the time of sexual maturity, and this extension of the adolescent time was inherited by offspring when placed under normal environmental conditions. He also changed the peculiar instinct of caring for the young, and produced a type of land larvae, the characteristics of which in part inherited, as the offspring of their maturity lived on land longer than their parents could have done, without showing any ill effects. Experiments were also tried on the spotted salamander, Salamandra maculosa, to test the inheritance of acquired color due to change of background with affirmative results that showed, according to the experimenter, the progressive effect of environment in the inheritance of acquired colors. This and other experimental work have given rise to a renewal of interest in the Lamarckian factor, but the final answer to the question of its truth or fallacy cannot be given until a large body of attested facts shall have been accumulated and weighed. Bateson, however, doubts the authenticity of Camerar's experiments. Cave-dwelling animals The strange modifications of cave-dwelling animals, which will be discussed in detail in a later chapter, are the direct result, first, of lack of light in the loss of pigment and of organs of vision, and second, of scarcity of food which gives rise to depauperated bodies and attenuated limbs. Certain organs, such as tactile or gustatory structures, have hypertrophied as those of sight have diminished, and while natural selection may be invoked to account for these well-developed structures, it cannot account for the atrophy of the others, nor the depopulation. Amphimixis might permit these changes, but is of questionable value as a cause. Both of the principal American students of cave faunas Packard and Eigenmann, feel the necessity of some other factor than the Darwinian, and Packard has expressed himself as follows with regard to the causes of production of cave faunae. Quote, 1. Change in environment from light, even partial, to twilight or total darkness, and involving diminution of food and compensation for the loss of certain organs by the hypertrophy of others. 2 disuse of certain organs, three, adaptation, enabling the more plastic forms to survive and perpetuate their stock, 
4. Isolation, preventing intercrossing with out-of-door forms, thus ensuring the permanency of the new varieties, species, or genera. 5. Heredity, operating to secure for the future the permanence of the newly originated forms as long as the physical conditions remain the same. Natural selection, perhaps, expresses the total result of working of these five factors, rather than being an efficient cause in itself, or at least constitutes the last term in a series of causes. Hence Lamarckianism, in a modern form, or as we have termed it, Neo-Lamarckianism, seems to us to be nearer the truth than Darwinism, proper or natural selection." Unquote. Inheritance of Instinct Instinct has been defined as, quote, the natural unreasoning impulse by which an animal is guided to the performance of any action without thought of improvement in the method, unquote. That's from Webster. It usually implies an action based upon inherited knowledge, but judging from experimentation upon living animals, that knowledge is the result of trial and error upon the part of an individual which ultimately becomes part of the heritage of the race. Birds are particularly interesting in this regard, for they possess so many instinctive traits, not only of food-getting and defense, but nest-building, migration, learning to fly in the mode characteristic of the species, and song. Many of these things have been attributed to actual instruction on the part of the parents, or, in the case of the nest-building, to a recollection of the natal structure. But Mr. C. William Beebe, curator of birds in the New York Zoological Park, tried the interesting experiment of raising a number of wild birds from incubated eggs. These, while never having had parental care or example, nevertheless manifested in each instance all of the instinctive actions of their race, although, as B.B. says, they were in some cases slower than they should have been about learning to fly the maternal insistence being an aid in overcoming a very natural timidity on the part of the fledglings. So many of the curious manners and customs of domestic dogs, such as turning around three times to stamp out a lair, are doubtless relics of formerly valuable instinct, of little present worth to the house-dwelling associate of mankind, but perpetuated by heredity. The result of similar life conditions, as has been said, gives rise to convergent adaptations of color and fur, form, and so on, which stamp the animals of a given type of habitat with a common resemblance. Instances are the thick fur of arctic creatures, and what are known as the standard faunal colors such as the uniform grays and duns of desert animals, the white of arctic forms, or the spots of forest creatures, and the colors distinctive of the inhabitants of the sea. Deep-sea fishes, with their almost uniform black or gray colors, and their attenuated body and slender tail, are highly characteristic, just as are the pale, emaciated dwellers in the perpetual darkness of the caves, and although they may be derived from several distinct families of fishes and salamanders, all are stamped with the hallmark of their discouraging environment. Ontogenetic Variations it is often a matter of great difficulty to determine whether characteristics shown by an animal are those of the race, phylogenetic, or those of the individual, ontogenetic. 
even though observed in a number of successive generations where the life conditions remain the same. An interesting example is the brine shrimp, Artemia salina, which has a widespread distribution from Great Salt Lake, Utah, to Central Asia. This creature is remarkable in several ways, as it can live in a 27% brine solution on the one hand, or in fresh water on the other. In some places the colonies seem to be altogether female, and parthenogenesis is the rule, the eggs developing without being fertilized. In other localities, males are common, and reproduction is biparental. Sometimes the brine shrimp is viviparous, the eggs hatching within the brood sac of the mother, and again it is variable in its form, especially as regards the end lobes of the tail and the bristles they bear, all of which features seem to be correlated with the chemical diversity of the various habitats within which it is found. That from Thompson the eggs can survive being dried and may be blown about by the wind or carried by the feet of birds from one salt pond to another they have also been bred from an english commercial product known as tidman's sea salt of which a solution was allowed to stand for several days a freshwater ally brancopus is said to be merely another phase of artemia the distinctions as in most of the peculiarities of the latter genus which have been described, being largely due to the degree of salinity of the medium. If this be true, most of these variations are ontogenetic, as the transference of eggs to other conditions than those under which the parents lived would at once give rise to a variant from the parental type. Experiments by Loeb upon the unfertilized eggs of sea urchins have shown that artificial parthenogenesis can be caused to occur by chemical stimulus, either by adding or suppressing certain salts in normal seawater, which is suggestive of the parthenogenetic conditions of certain colonies of Artemia mentioned above. Owing to the brine shrimp's method of dispersal and the fact that salt ponds are often isolated and of various degrees of salinity, the change of habitat is apt to be an abrupt one, which renders individual adaptability a highly necessary asset. The little fishes known as sticklebacks, which have such curious nest-building habits, also show an ontogenetic variation dependent upon the chemical content of the water. Those living in salt water have from twenty to thirty bony plates along their back. In brackish water, these are reduced to from 15 to 3, while in fresh water, there are none at all. As we have seen, it is often difficult to say whether the adaptive characters which are so often taken as criteria of species are racial or individual. If the latter, even though we may not know it, the form is an ontogenetic and not a genuine species and it is highly probable that many of the observed instances of what was taken to be inheritance of acquired characters are not such in the true sense of the word but are simply due to the repetition of cause and effect in each individual generation there is apparently an heredity control however for the adaptation to a change of habitat is not at random but always according to a definite plan and gives rise to a predictable result Summary. To summarize what has been said, Lamarckism, even if true, 
would be incomplete in itself as an all-embracing cause of evolution for as plate shows in kellogg while there are certain characters which it could well explain there are others which it could not lamarckism could explain quote, one many indifferent characters example changes of temperature produce proportional changes in the color pattern of butterflies wings two many simple adaptations of active organs example a muscle becomes stronger through use and creates a crest on a bone through pulls three some simple adaptations of passive organs so-called direct adaptations example in the whales the water might directly affect the skin and subcutaneous tissue and thus produce the loss of hair and the layer of fat unquote. lamarckism could not explain quote, one many characters of active adaptation even though of simple kind example the penetrating of the lung sacs of birds through hair fine holes into all the bones two many complicated adaptations of active organs examples light-making organs eyes smelling organs auditory organs three all complicated passive adaptations example mimicry unquote. kellogg sums up the present status of the problem as follows quote, lamarckism therefore is certainly not all sufficient to account for the origin of new species even if it were proved to be true nor for that matter is natural selection the latter seems however to be a factor of prime importance as there is no impediment to prevent its impression upon the race as well as upon the individual that acquired characters influence more or less profoundly the development of every being is certainly true and many instances repetition of acquired effects generation after generation gives rise to ontogenetic species which may indeed simulate the phylogenetic for these characters to become racial however implies an inheritance the means whereof we know not since weismann's brilliant but disquieting law of heredity was postulated until the universal application of this law shall have been refuted or a new mechanism of inheritance discovered the lamarckian factor as a means of evolution must be considered as unproved one cannot help feeling however that after a great many repetitions an ontogenetic adaptation may finally impress itself upon the race although the means whereby this may be accomplished is unknown to us but this implies an added increment however small to each generation for zero carried to infinity is zero still Unquote. end of chapter eleven recording by don evans w w w dot com